We're in Luke chapter 6. I am uh, I'm very grateful to Caleb for, for preaching not once but twice uh, in a row. And uh, he did a great job with Luke. And this morning we're going to pick up right where he left off last week. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. This is God's Word. In these days, he, that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And I don't want us to rush past this verse. Instead, I want us to pause here and consider again the importance of prayer in the ministry of Jesus. So, in this instance, before making a very important decision, Jesus pulls an all-nighter. Luke tells us that he devoted the entire night to prayer. He deprived himself of sleep in order to pray. And that begs the question, if Jesus felt the need to spend hours in prayer before making a big decision, why do I usually feel that a few minutes is sufficient if I pray at all? Luke wants us to see this is, this is the kind of relationship that Jesus has with His Father. Which means that it's the kind of relationship that Jesus is inviting us into. His relationship with the Father is available to us, and it looks like prayer. Verse 13. When day came, He called His disciples and chose from them twelve whom He named apostles, Simon, whom He named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Luke tells us about 12 men who were chosen by Jesus. He chose 12 for a reason, and they all knew what it meant, even though we may not immediately recognize this. There are 12 men which they're representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why there are 12. But one name stands out. It's the last name recorded by Luke, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And I'm, I'm grateful to uh, Pastor Ralph Davis for pointing this out in his commentary because I would have completely missed this. He says, Consider the fact that Jesus spent all night praying about this decision and still He chose a man that would betray Him. I said, so think about that. This is very instructive to us. It tells us that the purpose of prayer is not to prevent bad things from happening. Prayer is not 
good karma. Right? Prayer, you know, staying prayed up, as it were, does not magically protect us from problems. And if that's the only reason that we pray, that doesn't demonstrate that we have a a relationship with God so much as God is our genie in a bottle, right? And we're trying to get something from Him by saying the magic formula. Jesus prayed for hours. And still He chose Judas because... That was the mysterious providence of God. The Father loves Jesus, and still He allowed this betrayal. The message is, God may not give you the answer to prayer that you want, but He loves you no less. Verse 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. So Luke wants us to see that Jesus is now wildly popular in the entire region. He's he's powerful, he's healing people. And now there are people coming not just from Judea, but beyond Judea. And so these crowds are gathering, and many of them are looking for healing because they know that Jesus is able to do these things. And so there are Jews and there are Gentiles now coming to be, be part of these crowds. And among the disciples, there are both rich people and poor people, even among the twelve apostles. And I'm telling you that because it's important to know this because of what Jesus is about to teach, about what He's about to say. It's important that you know that this group of people, it's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and some need healing and some don't. They're rich, they're poor. It's a very diverse group of people. And what follows is a sermon that is very similar in content to the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied last year in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It may or may not be the same occasion that Luke is telling us about. We can't know for sure, but that's the preface for what we're about to read. Okay, so verse 20 says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, pause there, notice that Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's not necessarily speaking to the crowds, or at least Luke wants us to think of it that way. He's primarily concerned here with teaching the 12 men whom he just prayed over and selected. He says this, Blessed are you who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you 
and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And that is God's word for today. If you were paying attention, you probably noticed there were four blessings followed by four warnings. So blessed are you when... Woe to you who, okay? Four of each. Jesus promises blessings for the poor, the hungry, the sad, and the persecuted. But he warns the rich, the well-fed, the happy, and the popular. And I believe that this is to be understood not necessarily as as eight types of people, but really two groups of people. The first group, the poor, Jesus says, will inherit everything. The second group, the rich, He says, you already have your wealth. The poor will eat, but the rich will starve. You know what this makes me think of? Most of you won't have any idea what I'm talking about, but 40 years ago there was a comedy named Trading Places was released featuring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Very funny movie. Uh, The plot of the movie was that Aykroyd, uh, a wealthy businessman, is forced to trade places with Murphy, who plays this street hustler. And when I read this sermon in Luke 6, that's actually what comes to mind for me. It sounds like Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is about rich people and poor people trading places. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people read this, and that misses the point that Jesus is actually making. Because we need to read this a little more carefully than that. If you read carefully, Jesus is comparing the way things are, present tense, to the way things will be, future tense. But it's not just a simple exchange. The poor are not trading places with the rich. If that's what Jesus was saying, then that would actually make the poor worse off than they already are. Because he's not saying that the rich are blessed, right? Did you catch that? Now, if you, if you read carefully, if you look carefully what Jesus actually promises the poor, it's not earthly wealth, is it? What does he promise them? The kingdom of God. Now, the rich, Jesus says they have something 
but it's not the kingdom of God. And so they are not trading places. Instead, Jesus is teaching that the poor will receive something far better than what the worldly rich already have. Do you see that? I think we can summarize what Jesus is teaching His disciples in this way. Things are not the way they are supposed to be, but God's kingdom, Jesus says, my kingdom, it's going to turn everything right side up. Right now things are upside down, but I'm going to turn everything right side up. I'm going to change the way the world works. That is the covenant promise that Jesus is making His disciples. That my kingdom will make everything okay. None of my people will be hungry. None of my people will be sad. None of my people will be excluded. And so, how does He want His disciples to apply that truth? What does it mean for them? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us today? I think that Jesus intends to describe for His disciples the ways in which His kingdom looks different from the kingdom of this world. And so what this really is, is a call to be different, to see faith differently. Jesus is telling His disciples to stop pursuing temporary happiness. Stop worshiping at the altar of wealth and food and entertainment and popularity. He's saying that none of that produces the kind of lasting joy that you were created to experience. We have a great illustration of this, which is provided by the lottery. Nothing can instantly turn a poor person into a rich person quicker than the lottery, right? This week, as most of you probably know, someone in California bought a Powerball ticket that was worth $1.7 billion dollars. A hundred and eighty million Americans bought tickets. Some of them obviously bought a lot of tickets, right? Because that doesn't add up. But there was only one winner. And y'all, I get it. I completely understand the appeal. I absolutely have daydreamed about what it would be like to win that much money. Okay? We've all probably done that, right? I mean, you've been driving down the road, you pass that billboard, and you spend the next 30 minutes thinking about, what would I do with all that money? That's pretty normal for us. But you understand, I mean, I believe this. You may not believe this. I believe that even though I daydream about it, even though I've thought about it, I am certain it would destroy my life would absolutely destroy my life. Did you know that 70% of lottery winners spend or lose all their money in less than five years? 
Now, maybe not 1.7 billion, but most people, it's gone, right? Easy come, easy go. Read their stories, and what you will find is that most of them wish they had never won. And if you don't believe me, go home, and later today, I want you to Google the phrase, regret winning the lottery, and just read their stories. See for yourself pages and pages and pages of results of people who will tell you they wish they had never won, they wish they had torn up the ticket. Why? Because everyone they knew and people they didn't know started asking them for money. Because they became a target for all kinds of scams. Because it put strain on their marriages and other relationships and family turned against them. Winners report feeling guilty for winning. Guilty because they can't help everybody. They become bored with life. Suicide is common. Winning the lottery would literally ruin your life. Now listen, you've all heard this before. I know you have, but it doesn't matter to most people because we are completely controlled by our desires. Deep down, we all know that life is short. And we believe that we have to try and get our best life now. Right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And so we play the lottery because we're living for the moment. It's not just that. Um, this morning, actually, I was flipping through Facebook and... There was a, a post of a tweet that, that John Morant made this week. And, of course, you know, you know he's, our, he's our star for the Grizzlies. He has had um, a really rough year, I would say, um, to say the least, right? But this is what he published this week on Twitter. He said, it's a different story for me. It seems I've got everything I ever dreamed of, but I still can't find any peace. And he's not the only one that become rich and famous and say it's not all it's cracked up to be. But what if Jesus is right? What if that's not the way to happiness? What if Jesus is right? What if, what if his offer of lasting happiness is, is real? If there is a way to get that. What if there really is an inheritance that God is offering you that will never run out. And what I mean by that, what Jesus means by that, is not just like money and stuff. It's like time. That's what every rich person in the world wishes they had more of. Time. He's offering you eternity. What if you could forever be satisfied, forever joyful, forever accepted? Never alone. But here's the thing. What he's saying is you can't have both. 
You cannot have both. It is either his kingdom or it is the kingdom of this world. And there is a real choice to be made by you, by us, to either repent and believe or keep living for the moment. And one of the mistakes that we make is we think that's just a choice I make one time, right? I believe in Jesus, I accepted Jesus, I checked the box, I'm good. It's actually not what he's saying. He's speaking to his disciples. And the point is not just that we have that one decision to make. That's not it. It's it's a one-time choice, but it's also a daily choice to repent and believe that characterizes the Christian life from beginning to end. Because you know as well as I do, if you're a Christian, that that temptation doesn't go away. The world is always right there calling to us. And I have to warn you because Luke does. Don't assume. Do not assume that you're choosing the kingdom of God just because you're around Jesus or because you're part of the church. Why do I say that? Because Luke makes a point to tell us that one of the disciples is going to betray Jesus. Matthew tells us that Judas did it for only 30 pieces of silver. You know how little bit of money that is? That's maybe enough to buy a smartphone in today's currency. Judas spent three years with Jesus and betrayed him for an iPhone, basically. I want you to think about this. Judas was part of the greatest Bible study in the history of the world. His pastor was Jesus. His friends were the apostles. He witnessed countless miracles. He shared countless meals with the Son of God. And still He chose the kingdom of this world. Y'all, that's a warning to us. It's a dire warning to us that you can be around Jesus your whole life and still actively reject Him. Judas had a, a better opportunity than any of us ever will until the new heavens and the new earth to see the person and mission of Jesus up close and still he rejected Jesus. He rejected the kingdom of God in favor of the kingdom of this world. And I want you to understand that at the heart of this rejection is very often a misunderstanding about the way the kingdom of God works. And I want to suggest to you that that's actually the main point that Luke is making here, and Jesus is making. Two weeks ago when Caleb preached about Jesus healing the the paralytic and forgiving his sins, he, he made a very important observation. At that time, everyone assumed that bad things happened to people because of their sin or because of the sin of their parents. 
You remember him saying that? And they assumed that if people were rich and healthy and, and had a good life, that it must be because they were good people. Why would they assume that? Because people always get what they deserve, right? And that's wrong. Y'all, that, that is the philosophy of this world. Good things come to good people. Bad things go to bad people. People always get what they deserve. That's karma. That's the basis of every other religion except Christianity. It is not what the Bible teaches. It is not the gospel. That's the kingdom of the world speaking to us. No one gets into the kingdom of God because they deserved it. No one except Jesus. Sometimes bad things do happen to us because of our sin. So I'm not saying that, right? Sometimes we do get what we deserve in, in, in immediate consequences, right? Or sometimes lasting consequences. That's absolutely true. And sometimes good things do happen to us when we obey. That's also true. But according to Jesus, that has nothing to do with the blessing of the kingdom. We get into the kingdom with Jesus or not at all. And Jesus actually hinted at this in verse 22. I want us to look at it again. Verse 22, it says, Blessed are you when people hate you or when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Why? On account of the Son of Man. He's saying very clearly that the world will reject you. Why? Because you're with me. You see that? Now, by extension, what Jesus is saying is that that's the only way we actually get into the kingdom of God, because we are with Jesus. The world rejects us. God accepts us because we're with Jesus. Do you see this? And so how? How does that work? How do we inherit the kingdom of God? To put it very, very simply, it's by trading places with Jesus. You see, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus became poor so that we could inherit His kingdom. He became hungry so that we could be filled. He wept so that we could rejoice. He suffered and He died for our sake so that we could enter the kingdom of God even though, this is the key point, even though we don't deserve it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is who we follow by faith. Not just for a temporary blessing, but for an eternity with Him 
our good king. And he has promised that he will make everything okay one day. None of his people will be hungry. None of his people will be sad. None of his people will be excluded. But none of his people will deserve it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that your words were meant to not just turn the world upside down, but turn upside down the hearts of your disciples who had believed the wrong things about you and about the world. And your words challenged all of it. And right now, I believe that there are us in this room, some of us who's really... Our spirit is, is being turned upside down. We're questioning the way we've lived our lives up until this point. Father, I pray that you would speak to us in the midst of that, that your spirit would reveal Christ to us, that we would know the truth, that if we are in your kingdom, it's not because we've deserved it, because we've earned it. We've done nothing. We have nothing to offer you but empty hands. And even the choice to repent and believe is a gift of yours. We ask for that gift. We ask you to help us to trust in your name, to call on your name, to repent and believe. In Jesus' name we pray.